Radio Richard. You've done everything. And it's an interesting thing that a lot of arrangers have said that, you know, they, they compose, they, they, they perform, they do all okay, but you kind of get typecast in a way as an arranger. Do, do you feel that that in a way happened to you? It definitely happened to me because I didn't know enough about the business to, although I was doing other things, you get a label, and unless you change it very early on, it, it, it just sticks with you. And, and this is bad, but you know, I did a lot more than just so many music. Sure, well, maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I think uh, you could give us a, a, a sort of a special insight into the early days of uh, the music scene here in LA like in the 50s, because you'd already made hit records. Yes, I, um, well, first of all, you got to understand, I didn't start out to be a musician. I was, uh, my whole ambition was to be a presidential bodyguard. And I spent all of my early days, all of my schooling, everything was geared toward being in the FBI and being a part of the, you know, Secret Service and stuff like that. Uh, I was around music all the time. My mother was a, uh, played the piano, and she kind of geared me toward the piano. Uh, I had an uncle who started, actually started the first Afro-American record company, probably in the United States, long before Motown. It was, his name was Jack Lauderdale. And he's the one that discovered Esther Phillips and Mel Walker and Johnny Otis. They were on his label. This is back, I'm, I guess I was nine, ten years old, and he had a record company already. And they had a record called Double Crossing Blues and things like that that was on his label. So I was around the music all the time. I liked music, and um, being in Los Angeles, we had several theaters where they had live bands to play. And although I didn't want to be a musician, I was always attracted to music. So I used to go, we had a million dollar theater here, we had a Orpheum Theater, we had a Paramount Theater downtown Los Angeles. Uh, I lived in the projects, but if you took the, the streetcar, and got off, you get certain stops. You could get off at a club. I used to get off one club where I saw Joe Letcher and Nellie Letcher and Roy Milton and Big J. McNeely and Amos Milburn. And if I went a little further down the street, I would get up in front of the Paramount Theater, the Million Dollar Theater, and I could see, you know, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Louis Jordan. So I used to just hang out. I'm talking about from six, seven years old, just hang out around the music. And go sit in the back of the theaters and sit in the, you know, in the wings and, and listen. So I knew all the musicians, although I, that was the first thing from my mind. So I had a good musical background in spite of not wanting to do that. I mean, you, you had already learned to play a lot of instruments. It was, um, I learned how to play. My mother kind of started me on the piano. I had no formal lessons. I, there was an, an organization called the DAPS, it was the Deputy Auxiliary Police, uh, Junior Police Organization. They had a band, and they had a very nice man who came around and he let me have a saxophone. They probably played 10 cents a week or something with the saxophone. And then in school I got a violin. So I played violin in school and I had a little saxophone and I had a piano at home. And um, when I got to high school, I wanted to get in the well, actually, I didn't want to take any music, but what happened, we have a thing called ROTC here, which is a Reserve Officers Training Corps, and every 10th grader has to take it. But one of the drawbacks of ROTC is you have to march every morning, and you're on the field at 7 o'clock, and it's cold, 
and I didn't want to be in the ROTC. And somebody told me if you get in the band, you only march. You're in the ROTC, but you only march once a week. So I went to the teacher, Mr. John Farrar, and I asked him, "Could I get in the band?" And he said, uh, "What do you play?" I said, "I play the violin. I play the piano." He says, well, "We don't have violin pianos in the band." And I said, "Oh, I want to be in the band." So he says, "Well." Can you carry a tuba? And I said, sure, you know, I weighed 117 and a tuba weighed 500, I think. But he needed a tuba for the band, you know, to balance the line off, so I took the tuba. But after about three weeks of carrying that tuba, I decided that that was the thing for me, so I asked him, could I play another instrument? <coughs> so he told me, he asked me, he said, you can't play anything else. I said, well, I'll play a clarinet. He says, you can't play clarinet. I said, well, I can learn it. He said, it takes you years to learn how to play clarinet. I said, well, if I had one, I can learn He said, well, take one and see what you can do. So I took the clarinet home. I took me a book. And about a month and a half, I gave up the tube and became a clarinet player in the band. I, he just challenged me. I, I took the clarinet home. I took an oboe home. I took a French horn home. And at each Jump, he said, no, you will never know how to play that. And I did, and it, it became kind of a hobby. So by the time I got out of high school, I could play almost every instrument. I was in the All-City Orchestra in French horn. I played clarinet in, in the band. I played violin in the string quartet. It was just, it was more like a hobby. I wasn't good, but I could play. I could read music very well. So it was fun, but I still didn't want to be a musician. Though. But of course, that was ideal training for a ranger. It was learn. great training. Because you find out what instruments could do and what they couldn't do, how how they sound good in certain you know in certain ranges and such. You find out a lot of stuff like that. Well, I I went to I came out of high school. I went into the Los Angeles City College, who had one of the best jazz bands in the country and probably the world. In that band were guys like Bob Florence, Lenny Niehaus, Andre Previn. Those guys were in that in that Los City band. Uh, I. Signed up for the band, myself and another very good friend of mine by the name of Les McCann. Well, we weren't very conventional with our music and uh, definitely didn't, you know, respect the masters as we should have. So Mr. McDonald called us in after about three weeks of the class. He said, listen, if you guys drop out now, I'll just give you a no grade. But if you stand, you're going to fail because you, you guys are never going to be musicians. So Les and I dropped out. So that... I uh, didn't have any more music classes. Uh, I, I finished my tenure there. I got an interview with the FBI. I made my interview, made my oral. I was assigned to Louisville, Kentucky. But before I went to went there, there was a girl named Mickey Grant who was like a little girlfriend of ours, you know. And so she wrote a song called Pink Shoelaces, and I liked the song, so I made a record of it. And when I went to the bureau, I gave the record, all my masters to a very good friend of mine across the hall from my little office. Everybody had a record company. You know, 20,000 record companies in Los Angeles, everybody had one. So I gave all my tapes to a guy named Carl Burns, who, and I just forgot about it. You know, we just, hey, here, I'm leaving, man. You have all this stuff, you know. So five, six, seven months later, I was sitting in an office one day, and a guy came through whistling the song, and he said, uh, I said, oh, that song? Because I don't have, I know that song. So I made that record. You know, he says, no, no, no. He says, this is by, this is the number one record in the country. I said, no, no, no. I made that record. He says, no, you didn't make this record. So I, said, he said, I said, who's the singer? So he said, Dodie Stevens. I, said, I never heard of her. 
but that's my song and that's my music. I mean, I know that. He said, no. So I called Carl Burns and Carl said, hey, you know, I told your mother to call you. We've been trying to find you. He says, man, you, we're rich. <laughs> We've got this money. The radio was number one. I uh, immediately resigned from the Bureau and came home with the idea that if I made one record that was a hit, I could make a thousand records, they would all be hits. Of course, I was broke in about four months. <laughs> I, mean, I just made records, you know, no, just made records, you know, I had a record company, you know, did all that. Didn't know anything. I didn't know what I was doing, so I was broke again. And, uh, so how did you make the move from trying to be a solo artist to people asking you to do arrangements? Well, I, I was, uh, I, I was playing gigs. I gigs all the time, and you know, I could play all different kinds of instruments. I played, I was in country western bands, I was in rap, you know, in a rock and roll band, just, just playing with all these different bands. But there was no money, you know. So it seemed like the guys who were making the money were the guys who were the arrangers. Uh, the writers were making money, but I had no connection to know that they, you know, how, how the writing would be and the publishing would be. I didn't have that idea about stuff like that. But I knew the arranging, so <clears throat> I knew basically how instruments work. But I didn't know, the, I didn't have the skill of arranging, and uh, so I looked at the billboard, and I found the guys who I thought were the best pass. One guy was John Williams, one guy was Ernie Freeman, and one guy was Neil Hefty. So I made some phone calls. And basically what I said was, hello, my name is H.P. Barber, I'd like you to teach me how to arrange music. And each guy said, well, who is this? Why are you calling me? And so you're the best, you know, jazz guy. You're the best pop guy. You're the best, you know, classical guy. I want you to help me. And each guy said yes. Now, these guys didn't know I was talking to the other guys. They didn't know this for years later, you know. But I used to go sit at, you know, the sessions and sit there and watch them. I'd meet them early in the morning, you know, and, just follow them around all day and listen and watch and learn. And then uh, I started picking a few sessions myself and I got hooked. Still didn't want to be a musician, but it was a good gig, man. You know, the place you got a chance to travel and be you know, of nice people and everything. So it worked out fine. I'm having a good time. I'm not serious yet, but one day soon. What, one of the many things that's interesting about you is that you've worked with what I guess we could call old school pop. Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., and you've worked with the new movement of pop into soul and R&B. Talk about the differences between working in the different genres and different styles. Well, for me, it's all music. Uh, the same notes that rappers use and the same notes that Beethoven uses, the same notes that Sinatra sings, the same notes that B.B. King sings. It's just how you put the formula together. And I guess not being formally trained, I wasn't locked into any certain thing. Whatever you can hear, you should be able to duplicate or at least create something with. Uh, I have been fortunate in that respect because I've, uh, I mean, today, even, I, I work with Puff Daddy one day, then the next day I work with Aretha, the next day I work with Bill Collins, the next day I work with. Uh, you know, uh, I'm going to do a K-Star arrangement of it, or a Kitty Smith arrangement. So I've been looking that way. It, it's all it's all music, and I and I and I respect all of it. You know, there's some jazz I don't like. There's some rap I don't like. There's some gospel I don't like. 
But basically, I think everybody, when they go in to do what they do, they they do it because they believe in it. And because I don't necessarily like it or, or it's not my cup of tea, I still respect the fact that they made the effort to do it. I don't think anybody ever creates a song or writes an arrangement or sings a song and they look their way to it. Or so they wouldn't do it. And I've had some experiences that I know, I, I don't even try to critique anybody's music. I'll say, well, this is something I like, this is something I might not like. I had an experience one time, a guy sent me a tape. It was so bad. I shouldn't even say it was bad. It was so bad, and the guy was so sincere, he must have called me 700 times. So, in my expertise, I said, I wrote this nice man. And I explained to him how that everybody doesn't have to be a singer or an artist. That if you want to be a music business, you might be a publisher or a manufacturer or, you know, a roadie, all these different things. So don't worry if you can't be a singer, you know. And I sent this letter back to him along with this tape. And two weeks later, this thing was the number one radio in the country. I, I can't even think of the name of the song. It goes, one little shack in the back of the Cadillac. It was, it was, it was like, went bam. Prince. Prince came... I mean, I didn't know what to do with him. In, in fact, if, if I had done so, he probably would have been a hit. A friend of mine, uh, uh, Mr. Smith, and ended up to send Prince to, to me, and what did he say? No. You know, he probably did a good thing I did. He, you know, he, he came on, you know, made a start. So you don't, you, don't, you never know. You go with what you believe in. Uh, doesn't matter what type of music it is. I can, I can conduct the symphony or write. Uh, symphonic music. I can write. Uh, have have artists. I've been to Poland the last couple of years. I've been to Mexico. I I do Don Home, Marella Rodovich. I do uh, people out of Mexico, France. It doesn't matter. It's just music. And the good thing about it is, as long as we have that little piece of paper we can put in front of people, everybody, no matter where you're from, what country, what language, you put that piece of paper down, and everybody agrees. Everybody goes along with you, and, and whoever's standing in front with that little piece of paper, everybody listens to it and follows for that period of time. It, it doesn't happen any, anything else. It doesn't happen any other life, any kind of, any kind of business, only in this business. Every arranger seems to have their own working method. Um, when, let's say, for instance, somebody calls you, we need you, you know, in the studio next Tuesday. This is the thing we want. Here, we're sending you over the CD, and we need, you know, orchestral overdubs on this tune. Mm -hmm. How do you approach it? I like to, if necessary, just meet the artist for a minute, just to just to have a communication with them. <clears throat> I've been real fortunate that, that I don't have to work with people I don't like. Now, well, if I say I don't like, this means there's anything wrong with them. It just means this: I don't connect with them. And so I feel that everything I've had a chance to arrange or be a part of, it's been because there's some connection between the people. Um, I like to have the material as soon as possible. I listen to it. I may not write the arrangement for the night before the session, but I will have listened to that music. I, I, I'll put it in the car, I'll just run around singing it, I'll play it home. And so you get to feel the music. Uh, it's like them to make it, if I was to make the outfit for you, it, it's one thing just to look at you, it's another thing to measure you, it's another thing to see you walk and watch you move around to see how that has a look on you, you know. So I, I like to approach it like that. I like to have time to be with the person, to 
know, just if you talk on a cup of coffee or something, and don't have to talk about music, but in, in observing them, because I'm going to do something for them that's going to make the change both of our lives, and, and hopefully I'll get to know more about them than about me, and we'll do something more than just make a piece of music with some history. So um, when you do actually get down to writing the arrangements, fast. Yeah, because by that time I've already got the information. You know, that that's just the mechanics. But I I know if if I see your head move like that, that that oboe's gonna sound great, and that flute's gonna that's that that's that passage. You know, I know that by just being around and hearing the song. And, well, I can see from all the music lying around that that, <laughs> that, that you uh, you are a man who uh, you know uses uh, pen and paper. Now, I sure ha have you uh, has technology changed that? I mean, are you using computers now? Oh God, yes. About <clears throat> ten years ago, uh, somebody told me about computers, so I bought a, a Adam. Adam computer, I guess it is. I took it home. I have, I have a my oldest son. He called me and said, "Dad, listen to this." And he showed me, had me play some. And said, "I played it." And said, "Listen to that." So we started our uh, music company. I have a full fledged studio at home. Every all the computer stuff. I don't know how to work anything, but uh, in fact, this new album we have here, the new stuff here, it's all everything's computer. I'm doing do a lot of stuff computer. A lot of shows we do with this. Sometimes it's computer and some you know, live guitar, live something. But now, especially with uh, things like Pro Tools and stuff, where you, there's no tape anymore. I remember we used to leave the studio with just big boxes of tape and stuff. Like now, you leave with something like this, and your whole session's on there, and it sounds great. You know, uh, the, the the diehards, well, you know, it doesn't have the depth of tape. It doesn't want that's crap, man. I mean. The consumer's gonna hear what they hear. If the music sounds good, if it feels good to that that's what they're gonna buy. And I think you have to you have to give it up and say that that's what it is now. You know, telephones are different now, TVs are different now, cars are different now, so it's all different. Also, as an arranger, I guess the great thing about Pro Tools that I find is you can alter your arrangement much quicker. Oh yes, you can make changes, you can edit things, you know. And I'm, I'm not afraid it's going to replace anybody or anything like that. I think that the good music people will always be the good music people, and the bad music will always be bad music, and, you know, the technology will change that. In other words, if somebody, because they have a lot of technology, they're not going to become a great writer. You know, that doesn't make them a great writer. They, still, they have to be some creative. You know, what I like about it, I think, is if I, if I want to do a session with a guy that maybe can't get to Los Angeles right now, I can email him something, he can do it, email it back to me, and, and, and we can we can communicate. I still get his soul, I still get it, what he wants to add to it, and uh, and I can take it and put it into my project. I think that's great. We do a lot of sessions where artists in one place, the artists is in another place. I think that's great. I love it. <clears throat> now, of course, when you started out doing arrangements, um, none of this was possible, and Perhaps you can give us a feel for what the studio scene was like here in the 50s. When I started out, <clears throat> we had mono, and we'd make maybe one, two, or three tapes. We'd rehearse, make one, two, or three tapes, and that would be it. 
and uh, <coughs> some of the EQ things that were available, you could you know, maybe boost the bass a little bit, put a little high end on that was good. Music sounded good. Uh, I remember when they had, when they came out hi-fi, and they had stereo, and my God, you could hear from two sides of the speakers, that was just great. And uh, then two track, three track, four track, eight track, 16 track, now it's kind of ridiculous for the person that doesn't know what they're doing. They need 500 tracks to make the song. The people who are talented can still go in there and, you know, they take advantage of maybe 16 or 24 tracks and come up with a product. Um, it's still, it's still going to boil down to people who have talent, people who don't have talent. There's always those, somebody lucky. Some guy wins a lottery every day. Doesn't make you smart. That, that's nothing. That's always going to exist in any business. But the people who or there year after year after year are going to be people who are talented people. Well, speaking of talented people, um, of course, you know, I've got to ask what it was like working with Sinatra. Well, <laughs> very short. I remember he came into the studio. First of all, you know, I, I was at a point in my career where I could, I could, any musicians I wanted, I would get the musicians I wanted. It just so happened this particular case, uh, they said the drummer I want to use, Earl Palmer, I used a lot, Al Blaine, I used a lot. That's why I want Al Blaine. says, no, we have to use Earl, Earl Cotton. Well, I wasn't aware of Earl Cotton. And when this guy came in with these old drums and started setting up, you know, most of the drummers, I know they had cartridge companies in their stuff, you know. And this guy bought his own drum and I said, God, that's Lord, this is my first shot with Sinatra, and it's going to be, oh, this guy is going to wreck my whole session. Man, this guy was so great. He just he sat down. Sinatra walked in. He heard the playback. We, we ran the track down. He says, who wrote this? And he said, where's that kid been? We're going to be seeing a lot of him. He made two takes and that's it and left. That was it. <laughs> Did he record with live? Yeah, live. That's right. Now, I will say this. He... You know, there was a there was a club here. It's it's now the Laugh Factory or something, but it used to be a used to be a little hangout where all the you know started. And I'll show you how hip he is. I was in there one night with some bunch of friends, you know, and we were having dinner. And Sinatra Mia Farrell walked in and sat down way across the room, you know. And uh, everybody said, "It's Frank Sinatra, you know." So I didn't want to be, you know. Go there, you know, bother, you know. Even though we had we had our little encounter and everything, how wonderful, you know. He got up and came on my table and says, "Barnes, how you doing?" He says, "Man, that was a great piece of music you wrote." And he says, "Oh, you know, we're going to be doing something again." And man, I was in hall heaven. I mean, you know, for sure, you know. It was really nice. He was he's a really great guy, man. He just was, yeah, he was a really great guy. And. Um I mean, I can see on, on your massive list of credits that you actually arranged with the Duke Ellington Ellington Band. Duke Ellington Band, Confucius Orchestra, uh, Stan Kenton. Well, how did those things come about? You know, I don't know. People just call. I mean, I, I, I've, I've had a manager for about two years. They didn't do anything for me. But people call me. I, other people tell other people. Other people. Uh, 
you know, highlights would be like, you know, call one day and say, hi, HP Horn, this is Lena Horn. Lena Horn! Oh my God. I mean, my heart was going like this. She said, I'm coming out to Los Angeles, I need some charts, I want you to do some charts for me. And man, you you should maybe clean up the office. Everybody wore a suit, man. Everybody was all clean. She walked in the old t-shirts and jeans and stuff. It's just, I mean, it was just like, it was wonderful, you know. Uh, but I, I had a lot of fun, you know. Peggy Lee, K-Star, all, all the old ones. And then, then when you get a chance to do something with uh, your idol, like uh, Louis Jordan, you know, I wrote a couple of things for the band, you know. And, uh, with Basie, I got with Basie, and I was singing with a group called The Robins, that's how I met Basie. And we had a little hit called Cherry Lips from the Whippet label, you know. And we were, we were singing, and Cobb Basie band was actually like the second billing to us at that time. You know, they hadn't, they hadn't come along with the Jones to me. So, uh, and I really, you know, I could write the music, but I had never really written for that kind of a situation. And uh, I wrote this arrangement, and I forgot to put the key signature in. And, you know, music, musicians can be very cruel. So when we started off the thing, of course, they just thought, oh, just, oh, this is a bunch of noise. And the guy started laughing, and I started crying, and I ran out, and I remember Marshall Royal came out, and he said, he said, man, this is all you did. Just put the key seat in and get on back. I'm not going back. I'm not going back. He said, I'm going back in there. And Marshall took me and he grabbed me. He said, you get back in there and tell them both to shut up and play the music. Like, they know what's supposed to be. They know they put the key seat in. So that was good. Down in Washington, I was 13, 14. I used to hang out with, you know, sit, hang out at the clubs, and sit in the back rooms and stuff like that. But I could play every Down in Washington song. I could play any song she sang, I knew it on the piano. And uh, she was appearing, there was a club in Los Angeles called the Oasis. She was appearing there with Donna Washington with Red Fox and uh, Slappy White and uh, Lon Fontaine dance. Been, they had a big review show here. And, uh, the piano player was Elmo Hope. And Elmo was going through his problems that time. And he, because he'd been sitting at the piano all night, they had played it all. He'd just been sitting there all night, no music. And, uh, the lady that owned the club knew I knew that I didn't watch the song, so they called my mother and asked her to pack that in the club. She said, we can't come to the club. Said, well, we're going to bring him in the same place, we're going to put him in the back room, we won't be in the club. So, and mom, please, I'm done. Why don't we get home? Drive mom, I don't want to go. So they picked me up and went to the club. I remember walking in, and it was people had been waiting for the show. It's about 10 15 now, and the show's supposed to go at 8 30, and people, you know, so they said, just go to the we're going to start right now. And they, the first time I knew the song, what I didn't know was that they had changed the key because their voices cut off. They brought it down the step. So they counted it off. And I hit the key to the record, and the band was in the other key. And she turned around and said some things to me that were just horrible. She just lit in me. Oh, I started crying, man. I ran out of the club. Red Fox came out and got me. said, Get back in there. And he said, Say the song in the right key. She said, Okay. And she sang it. Pay the night she took me in a room for six months. When I was six months there. When you were 13? Yeah. The only reason I came back was I had to go back to school. I was out of six months and nine and just playing piano, you know. So I have had a chance to work with all the really good people, you know. And uh, I'm not stymied by any style or any particular thing. I can, if it's music, just bring it to me and I can do it. Well, how old were you when you went? He had the daunting task of arranging for the Ellington Band. 
I was I was doing stuff for the bands like that when I was 17, 18, 20, yeah. But you know, it wasn't that good, but it was, you know, things that they could play. <clears throat> well, I guess most people have the impression that, you know, he and Louis Strayhorn just wrote everything. Well, there were a lot of people that wrote from the band. I mean, they, they, every once in a while, they, every, every band has tracks from, uh, I, I, I would say, I probably have tracks from over five, six hundred different artists books, you know. I mean, you know, Louis Prima, Keely Smith, you know, that's, that's an odd thing for me, for me to, you know, Harry James. You know, you get one chart in, uh, sometimes it's because they have a singer in the band that needs something special, they'll come to somebody to do it. Sometimes they hear about you, they just want to see if you can do it or not. You know, they will call you, hey, I heard, you know, can you do something? Say, oh, yes. What do you think contributes to your ability to be so versatile? I'm still trying to find out what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm still I'm trying to find my way through. Well, it's just music, man, you know. Okay, let's talk about... Uh, in the 50s, of course, all kinds of new music was coming before um, R&B, soul, rock and roll. Um, what were some of the first artists that you got involved with in this style? Well, I was doing singing. I was singing with a lot of groups. You know, we, in Los Angeles here, we had the, the Penguins, the Dutones, the Italians, uh, so, and they were all the same guys, <laughs> basically, we would, one night we'd be here, we'd be this, we'd be Don Junior and the Metal Rocks this night, and the next night we'd be this group, depending where the gig was, it was promoting, you know, uh, so, uh, and I would be the one probably to do the sketch out the, if we had a band, I'd be the one to sketch out the chords for everybody. I think, I think my serious arranging gigs, as far as I'm concerned, started in the 60s when I got involved with doing the Motown group. Because I used to go back and forth to Detroit, and, you know, it would be pieces that would, they would say, Here, here's 17 tracks that need strings and horns, or here's, you do the rhythm and then Paul's going to do the strings, and then Dave Van Peet's going to do this. So. Sometimes we never even knew the name of the song. We knew we had the groove and the little melody line, but we didn't know what the song was. No, we knew what artist it was for. Just, just music, you know. You, sometimes it would only be a two or three bar turnaround that you have to just develop into something. So you wouldn't have a melody on the track? Half the time we wouldn't know what the melody would be. There would be, you know, if you listen to all the Motown stuff of that, of that era, most of the things you could tell the song by the introductions, by the the way the chord progressions started. And uh, most of those songs had pretty lengthy introductions on them. Unlike most stuff not just started playing, most of them had nice introductions on them. So um, I know in working with Eddie, Brian and Eddie and them, we could certainly say we get four or five bars. So uh, Well that's really interesting about the about the Motown thing. So so who would you like who would call you up? Would it be Barry Gordy or uh, Hank Cosby or uh, Johnny Bristol or uh, or Brian or Eddie would call me sometime, you know, or Smokey would call. You know, two of them would do a session and say, "Listen, we need we need we need to horn strings on this. We need to do a rhythm track on this." And sometimes the, the title would be just a working title. And, uh, 
Now, it was a little more organized here uh, with the capital RTA stuff because uh, I would actually write out a full arrangement and uh, working with Dave and people like that. We'd actually write out a full chart and everything. But some of the Motown stuff was just developed in the studio. I used to go into Cincinnati and I to work for Kay and most of the stuff just developed in the studio. Most of the Dutown stuff was just developed in the studio. I always like to have some kind of a working map because that way I always thought that if you had to stay in the studio four days and do a track, you were just wasting your own money. So, but you know, a lot of people pride themselves on well, it took us six months to cut this song. I don't know if it would have been any better if they cut it in two days. I think it would have been the same thing. That seems to be, uh, when I was in the studio business, people call a book studio for six months and what are you doing? What are you doing? We're going to cut four sides. Well, just put it for the time you need. Oh, no, it's going to take six months to do this. Fine, you know. I don't believe that. I think if you know what you're doing, when you're going, you should be able to come out of there. It's just money you're wasting. How would you contrast working in what sounds like a kind of factory atmosphere at Motown to working with James Brown? <laughs> well, see, James is one of those brilliant people. He knows what he wants. James, Sly, uh, I Turner, uh, Brian and Eddie, you know, and the Holland Dozier team, they know exactly what they want. They may not be able to articulate it to you properly, but if you keep listening to them, it'll, it'll come about. You, you know, uh, Stevie was, was very strange. You know, Stevie's first one for me to start to write music that wasn't, you know, eight bars, eight bars. His stuff was kind of twisted. And a lot of times, I heard that so no, you, you can't do that, that doesn't fit. It all fits. It's up to the arranger, the you know, the architect to say, I want ten light sockets and four bathrooms. You can, it's up to that make it look good, make it make it put it in the place. So the the, the changes in the music and the changes in the different working with different people, you know, personalities that would be a problem sometimes, you know. Because these people have different personalities, like uh, Lamont used to like to work late at night, but Eddie liked to do stuff in the daytime. So sometimes you have to meet with one guy and then meet with the other guy, and then sometimes you all met together. But sometimes, you know, Lamont could sit all night and just work and work and work. And work. I like to work at night. But uh, it would just depend, you know, it depends on who you're doing. Capital was organized because, you know, they had the studio, they had their own staff of people and each one of them worked a little different. Nick Day worked a little bit Dave Asperger, he worked a little bit different than Steve Douglas did, you know, and so on. So you had to kinda play the personalities. At Motown did you mainly work, as you said, on overdubs or did you also work in studio A with Funk Brothers? Oh I worked I worked with the Funk Brothers. I worked we you were just there and you were in the army and you just filled in the spot where the spot was needed. And I think that's what made it so good too, because everybody kind of contributed to something. If you were, if, if people said, well, what did you arrange? I said, well, I, I, I think I arranged something on that because it sounds like me. But but then again, uh, you know, if you remember the beginning, Motown never put arrangers' names or anything on the records. They, they uh, you just never knew who did, did what. And I think that was for two reasons. Uh, I don't want to get into Thing a long time, but you know, if they never did that, then people never got 
big, you know, they just they were there in the factory. But once you start letting people know who they are, then other people start calling those same people to do things, you know. And in the beginning, you know, none of the Motown Rangers did anything for anybody else except Motown. Where if you were to capitalize it said arranged by a certain person, then you know, that would that would be your untreated other jobs or something like that. Could you pick out a couple of tracks that you'd say, like a couple of Motown tracks that you'd say, well, I did a hell of a lot on this one, and I'm, you know. Yeah. Uh, you take a song like I Wish It Would Rain, you know, I know I did the string parts of that, but I don't know if that was a title when I did it. You, you, you hear the music and you say, well, you know, I know I did that, but that was, that's not the, the name of the song when I did it. No. As you said, you didn't know who the artists were. Well, half the time you didn't. Uh, that changed near the end because near the end, when we, like when by the time we, the Supremes were getting ready to break up, someday we'd be together. We knew that was for the Supremes only. But there were a lot of times we recorded something that we thought would be for Gladys that wound up being for Marlettes or for Martha and, and vice versa, you know. So uh, a lot of times that happened. Their quality control was probably the best of any label in history as far as knowing just what the faults for people were going to be. So, but you didn't have any way of knowing what you sit and put it in the pot or the other side. So. Well, <clears throat> let's contrast all of that with stuff that you're doing today. <laughs> I mean, the, your working methods today. I, I, today it's it's very. The music's the same, but it's di it's the different. It's business today, and I'm not I'm not really caught up in it like. Probably like I should be. That's probably why I don't do enough stuff. Have a nice clientele. I don't have to struggle for work or something like that. Because it's different. It's business. It's numbers. If the numbers don't generate, I don't think companies care about how talented you are. If you're not generating numbers, you got to go. Uh, I think 35, 40 years ago, companies were interested. Excuse me, in a long time careers for artists. In other words, you make an artist who's going to live for 30, 40 years. I think that they come as interested in making a hit record. And they can manufacture hits as fast as they can find the people that look a certain way, that can dance and look good on the camera. I, I don't think it has that much to do with talent. I'm not, I'm not saying some talented people don't come through, but I think there's some very talented people out there. I just don't think they'll develop into long careers because there's no, there's no training ground anymore. I mentioned that I used to go and sit and listen to bands. I'm not going to. Most of the guys out of that time period spent time going to sessions and playing with other people and just interchanging ideas, sitting around talking about music. I remember uh, Dennis Butterbeer, Tommy Tedesco, and I, and Cal Wayne, we used to leave a gig and go up to Griffith Park and sleep in the park at night and get up and walk and talk about music. And I didn't even want to be a musician, but it was just so cool being with the guys, you know. I remember Eric Dolphy, I used to have Eric's house, Eric would practice all day and all night. I said, I never heard anybody practice like that. My first band, I had Eric Dolphy, Charlie Lloyd, Lester Robinson, uh, Carol Kay. I put Carol on bass because I had Dennis Butterbeer on guitar. I had two guitar players. Carol was a guitar player. She was a guitar player with Ida Ray Hudson's all-girl band. Um, 
I put, I put Caroline Baines. And then she mentioned that in her book. I mean, just because I had a guitar player. So, but you just eliminate music. Today, I don't see the young people going out to hear somebody else sing. If they're not gigging, if they're not getting paid, they don't do it. It's, it's all business. So I wonder what's going to happen. Uh, a singer coming up 25 years ago, if you said, you know, sing a song, they can sing 15 jazz songs, 30 pop songs, 10 gospel songs. The singers today, and I mean the top people, they know two songs. They're hit, and maybe somebody else has been hit. They don't know any other songs. That's, it's a pleasure working with Aretha, because Aretha will sing on the, on the program this week. She will sing an Irish medley, uh, Waiting for O'Leary, and she'll sing Chain of Fools, and then she may sing uh, My Heart Will Go On. And she, I mean, you get a chance to do a, a vast you know, array of, of music, but the, the kids now, most of them don't have any idea of what they're doing, and it's very successful, so I guess why should they do anything else? My thing is, if, if things change, if the economy does something crazy, they had to go out and just sing in the club, just, you know, better than going to work at the phone company, they could go sing in the club. They wouldn't know what to sing if they couldn't sing their own song. And that, that, that bothered me. I was talking to Jerry Wexler about two weeks ago, and he was telling me uh, in the early days how um, how much she would kind of take control of the sessions and sit at the piano and say, this is the way it's going to be, guys. That's, that's right. And is she still like that? There's a sign in the other room there that says, the boss is always right. That's rule number one. And if there's any discrepancy, rule number two says, refer to rule number one. She's always right. That's right. And anybody that I work for, they're always right. And if I work for them, they're right. Now, I can give them suggestions. I, it's my job to give them all the information that is available so that they can make a correct decision. Then when they make the decision, they're right. Now, is it a decision I would make? Maybe not. But if, if that, let me be, when I'm the boss here, I'm right. And I, I, don't, I don't mind that. Uh, you know, we all do some crazy things that other people look at why are they doing that? But that's just the way it is. What is it, do you think, that has made your relationship go on for so long? No, first of all, I respect your talent. I, I, uh, I've had a chance, you know, to, to take jobs with a lot of other artists who pay far more money. I would get a chance, chance to travel to better places, you know, they, they've had more hits right now than she does, and, but the lady can sing. And every time she sings, I learn something. And I think that every time that I go out with an artist like that, with, with an Aretha, or with a Tony Bennett, with, I learn something. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a process you just want to learn and grow. And uh, thank the Lord I don't have to worry, worry just because it's, it's just a money gig. I can do things. And I think every time that she sings, it's like history. It's not like just doing gigs. I couldn't agree with you more about that. Uh, tell me this. Do you think that the attitude of business towards the arranger has changed in the Fifty years that you've been yes, because because with the technology, everybody just imagines that they can do you know what I'm doing you know because they can sit there and figure it out and in the sense they can they can sit there and figure it out I may arrive at the, the total of everything faster 
But you know, if, if you get a kid that sits down, he gets himself a computer and a keyboard, and three weeks from now he's got a record of the charts, how can you then tell him that he needs a major or that he needs anything? He's, he's dead at all. So he may be the lucky enough to go through his whole life never having to realize that he doesn't know anything. And there are people like that. I'm sure there are people like that. You've been in a lot like that in my business. Uh, I, I know people by business who are conductors, arrangers, they can carry music in the bucket, but they are at the top of the ladder. Now, I, I respect the fact that they're very successful. Uh, my only personal opinion about how good they are, that's, that's my opinion. It doesn't mean anything. What if I was to say that man, that doesn't know anything about me? And this guy is like, you know, conducting in the top places in the world. I look like a fool talking about it. He's making 10 times more than I make. I was amazed. One of my very good friends who's a very, very big arranger for very big artists in business, and we're talking about the good old days. Now, I, I said, well, man, you know, I can remember times when the promoter coming in and said, man, I'm sorry, guys, I just got robbed. I can't pay you tonight. He says, we've always got paid. I said, you mean you never had a gig where you didn't get paid? And then and I told B.B. King, B.B. King said, he can never play the blues. And how does he know anything about the blues? Now, this guy makes a blues record with a big hit. But he doesn't, he doesn't, it's just a hit because it's manufactured well, promoted well, he's top of the ladder. But he doesn't really know anything about the blues. But that's irrelevant because that's our frame of reference. And his frame of reference is he's got a number one record. Our friend Rex, he doesn't know anything about the blues, but who cares? The people out there don't know the difference. They're going to take what they get. I had a class this morning, uh, started with the third and fourth graders, and we showed the instruments, and the teacher said, Do you know what those instruments are? And the kid looked at the flute, so that's a trumpet. They don't know. Do you think that a lot of this attitude is because of the, the infrastructure of the way record companies are? I mean, for instance, could you contrast for us the difference between the music-loving entrepreneurs of the 50s and 60s and the kind of record executives you deal with now? The music entrepreneurs of the 50s and 60s will all be dead in the next 20 years. So we don't even, they're not part of the world anymore. The people now, it's about the money and its numbers. And I don't care if it's the music business or the shoe business or the real estate business, it's about how much profit that we're going to earn. It, it's, it's happened in Las Vegas, it's happened in the club business. 30 years ago, I, we had too many A&R men in most companies, but every A&R man knew something about music. They either played an instrument. In other words, you and I are A&R men, we could listen to this like artist sing, and we could say, you know, I bet you we put strings here and blah, blah, blah there. You can't talk about that to guys in the companies now. They don't care about strings and stuff. They want to know what market is going to go to, who's going to buy it, you know, how much it'll cost to promote it, and that's it. So the artist has caught in a situation where they either have to think about, can I get a hit right now? How much money can I make right now? Because if I don't make this hit right now, I won't be here next week because the, the, the guy in the record company is not going to sit here with me for five years spending money on me because he knows I have talent, because he knows because he knows I'm an Aretha, or I'm an Aruba Walls, or I'm a Paley. He, they don't care. It's, it's about the money, because they won't be there. So, I was talking to Jeremy Lubbock yesterday, 
and he was saying that he had been recently told on a session, you, you cannot write the strings above the staff because it's not commercial. Now, have you ever been, I mean, you know, as an arranger, that, that made me angry, but it, have you ever been curtailed in that way or told, no, you can't write this because it's not commercial? No, not that way. I've, I've, uh, I've had instances where, especially when I first started, you write too much sometimes and you, you know, you overshadow the singer and sometimes they will bananas on you, you know. <laughs> But no, I, and, and I don't know what that particular situation was. It may have been a, a song that, uh, that didn't need nice strings. You know, I mean, you might you go in a situation that sometimes you do a session with somebody, and then there's maybe three arrangements, and you'll call the country and say, "Well, no, we've got you know 14 violins, two of us, four cellos. You 14 violins, you got to write something 14 violins, whether some reason or not. You got to write something for the 14 violins, man. So sometimes you can get carried away. Now, I don't know what that particular situation was, but I've never had uh, anybody tell me, you know, how high or how old am I? It may seem in the session, say, well, well, that's a little busy there. Can we change that? And that that's not fine. How much easier is it, for instance, today with computerized parts to change things than it was in the old days? The only thing easier, if you want to change something to a computerized part, you don't have to call a musician back in, you know. And you can make better edits. You know, you could you could edit with tape, but it wouldn't be as clean and as precise. And you can take something and fly it to another spot, which you couldn't do with tape. <coughs> so, it, you know, that that part's easy. The technology is made it much easier to do things like that. But as far as the creativity, it doesn't help any. And it doesn't say you, you spend just as much time with the computer as you do with a pencil, pencil, paper. Another question I'm asking a lot of the different arrangers I'm talking to is uh, um, to name a couple of other arrangers who they really admired and why. Well, I said from the very beginning, I admired uh, Ernie Freeman, Neil Hefty, John Williams. Uh, I was very, very fond of Dave Vanderpeter, Neil, and uh, Paul Weiser from Motown, but these guys were just fantastic. Um, George Martin. I mean, I don't think there'd be no Beatles on George Martin. I mean, he, what he did with that music, he made people want to listen to it. Because I, I don't know, it would just been a rock band without him, I think, you know. And I don't think it would have happened, I think. So I love him. And then today, um, uh, Gene Page, I mean, you know, old buddy Gene, Gene writes a beautiful, beautiful string parts. Uh, I find as an arranger, one of the reasons this is fun is because you never get a chance to talk to other arrangers. You're talking to musicians all the time. You're talking to record company people, artists, but you very rarely get a chance to work with other arrangers. Well, you know, arranger is a term, and I'll tell you why. And I, I'm not trying to put down my own thing, but I mean, I think we're fantastic. But when you say arranger, you know, a lot of times you hire musicians for what they're going to bring to a thing. Like you put a chord down, and that guy will start playing something that's around that chord. And all of a sudden, that actually becomes part of the identity of that song, which, is, in fact, is the arrangement. And that guy bought that there. You know, he bought that to the session. Not you. You had, What you might have had in your mind, I just finished the thing today, and I used a guitar player named Grant Geisman. Grant is just fantastic. And we were doing this song, and the song was really cool. We think the song's going to be it. But Grant started playing some of the guitar, and I said, look, forget what I put on that paper, man. That's what I want. 
He was just fooling around. He said, you sure? I said, yeah, man, that's fantastic. You know? So in fact, uh, you're, any, any creative person is an arranger. We may have the ability to, to notate it, and, you know, kind of organize it so everybody moves the same way at the same time. But literally every creative person, Aretha's an arranger. She can sing a song that would inspire me to go and rewrite something I've written because she just did something vocally. That boy, if I just change this right here and let, and let her do that, I hope she do it again. Only remind her, read this is what you did, you know. So let's change this. So we're, we're all arrangers in a sense. Uh, we're all producers in a sense. I mean, being an arranger, how many times did you get a guy that gives you five songs and told you to meet him at the session? <laughs> and you go back and you create all this. How many times have you written a, an introduction that becomes the, you know, the key for the song? Without that introduction, the song probably would never got heard. So we all we all have a. It's, it's really like everybody making a big pot of soup. Everybody puts something in that tastes good. Maybe individually those things would have tasted good, but all together it seems really good. And I can't thank you enough for making the time to see us. Well, I really thank you for I thank you for thinking about us arrangers because there's there's so yeah. many guys in the, in the country. I mean. You, are you a long-distance truck driver who'll be driving across the country, stopping only at a filthy diner to relieve yourself of the interminable boredom? Great! While you're driving, join me, Richard Niles, for my podcast, Radio Richard. Intriguing interviews and peripatetic performances from master musicians like Randy Brecker, Wayne Shorter, Niall Rogers, and the Yellow Jackets. don't drive a truck, I can guarantee that Radio Richard will spin your tires. <laughs> don't miss a moment of the fun. Subscribe to Radio Richard. Thank you.